Well, good morning, everybody. Praise God, and welcome to Gospel Saving Church. I'm so glad you're here. This is your first time here. Hello, I'm Pastor Ed Spagnoli, and this is Gospel Saving Church, one of God's true churches of these last days, and this is our weekly broadcast of truth from God's Word. Hope you didn't come here to be entertained or, or to enjoy yourself and to have fun. And not that church isn't a place where we can't have fun and be and have enjoyment, but it's not a place where we come to be entertained and we come to do those things. It should be fun for us to come and be around other believers, and it should be exciting for us to come and hear the Word of God. And in those ways, it's good to come to church, but not to, be, not to come to be entertained, not to come to, you know, just for the donuts. I hope you, hope you came here to hear the Word of God and the truth. We always start with a word of prayer before we begin our sermon. Helps us to focus, helps me to focus, and helps us to get our minds on God's Word and the things of God. So if you guys would please join me and uh, let's ask God for His help for me to teach this sermon and for you to listen to it and for God to do His will in our lives. That's what's most important, right? God to do His will in our lives. If we're His, that should be our main goal. God, fulfill your will in our lives. So God, that's what I pray for today. We, we come to you, Lord God, in Jesus Christ's mighty name, Lord. Your Word says that that's the only way we can come to you. We can't come through you or come to you through anybody else, or any old person that's dead, or some saint, or some you know woman or man, or, or some special guy in a in a in a in a vestment or something. Lord, we, we can come to you, Lord, through Jesus Christ. Lord, that's what your word says. And so, we thank you for this day. Thank you that you've brought us here. Thank you, Lord, for every single person that's in my home today, listening to this message, Lord. And I thank you, dear God, for all those that have come from all over the world to listen to this message, Lord God. I, I pray, Lord, as I told them just a few minutes ago, Lord, we, that if we're yours, then our, de- our desire should be that you fulfill your will in our lives. So God, I, I do pray that right now. I ask you, Lord, as I know you heard me earlier, but now I ask you directly, please, through Jesus Christ, I pray your will will be done in our lives. Lord, through this sermon, through your words, by your Holy Spirit, Lord, in all the ways in which, Lord, you sanctify us, please, Lord God, Continue to sanctify us and help us that are yours to be more like you, to help bring you more glory, to help lead people to you, Lord God, because that's what leads people to you. We thank you, Lord. We, we do ask, Lord, for your will to be done also in those lives of those people out there that may be listening that aren't yours. Maybe they don't know it. Maybe they think they are, but they're not, because that's something in your word. But, Lord, if they're not yours, I pray, dear God, that your will of salvation of repentance unto salvation, Lord. Well, you know I've got that scheduled for the end of the message, but I pray that your will in their lives would be done as far as repentance unto salvation and Jesus Christ, Lord God, please, through this message and, and through your word and through your Holy Spirit, through you speaking to them through me. Please, Lord God, let your will be done in this message and, and just help us, Lord God. Help us understand it and help us then to apply it to our lives. We thank you, we love you, and we praise you. And we ask all these things in Jesus Christ's precious and holy and powerful name. Amen. So today we're going to be in Acts chapter 27. We're, we're closing out the book of Acts pretty soon here. We're, uh, obviously, we're going to be taking a break next week for a, a Christmas sermon to honor and glorify the Lord Jesus Christ, which is why I celebrate Christmas, not because Jesus Christ was born on December 25th, or I don't get into all that. I just know that... that there's a day that our country recognizes that allows me to freely worship and to freely uh, go about and, and spread the good news of Jesus Christ. And that day kind of softens people's hearts. So I'm going to probably be taking a break next week and having a special Christmas sermon as next Sunday is just a couple days before Christmas. Uh, today we're going to be in Acts chapter 27, but we're almost done. Act 28 is the end of the book. Today we're going to be in verses 9 through 20. We're almost going to finish out 27. I, I'm guessing that probably somewhere in January we're going to be done with Acts. And so pray for me that God would tell me what book to go into next because I don't just go Acts and then Romans and then 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. I, I just, wherever God wants me to go, whatever book he wants me to go to next, then I go to that book and then I take however long it takes and I study through that book, whatever book that may be. So pray for me on that. Anyway, the title of our sermon today, The Killer Storm. The Killer Storm. It'll all make sense if you've read over this section of Scripture, Acts 27, 9 through 20. You'll understand as we read it here. I'm going to read it along. You can read along with me or you can listen along, whatever you'd like. But I usually read the Scripture before we start a sermon. So here we go. Acts 27, verse 9. Luke writes this. 
Now, when much time had been spent, sailing was now dangerous because the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Men, I perceive that this voyage will end with disaster and much loss, not only of the cargo and ship, but also our lives. Nevertheless, the centurion was more persuaded by the helmsman and the owner of the ship than by the things spoken by Paul. And because the harbor was not suitable to winter in, the majority advised to set sail the majority advised to set sail from there also, if by any means they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete opening toward the southwest and northwest and winter there. Verse thirteen. When the south wind blew softly, supposing that they had obtained their desire, putting out to sea, they sailed close to Crete. But not long after, a temptatious headwind arose called Euroclidon. So when the ship was caught and could not head into the wind, we let her drive. And running under the shelter of an island called Claudia, we secured the skiff with difficulty. When they had taken it on board, they used cables to undergird the ship, and fearing lest they should run aground, on the Sirtis sands, they struck sail and were so driven. And because we were exceedingly tempest-tossed, the next day they lightened the ship. On the third day we threw the ship's tackle overboard with our own hands. Verse 20, Now when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest beat on us, all hope that we would be saved was finally given up. Last week we studied the very beginning of this treacherous trip, the same one that Paul is on today with all of these people. Words that have described this trip so far and words that are describing this trip now. uh, Delays, time-consuming, tedious, frustrating, contrary, uh, hard-sailing, dangerous, life-threatening. That's a dangerous, dangerous trip so far. Scripture told us that they have to take a layover, remember one last week for Paul because he became ill. Then they were unable to travel at a good speed because of the contrary wind, and it took them many days just to go, just to travel a couple hundred miles. They could not set a straight course for Caesarea to Rome, or from Caesarea to Rome, the wind literally stopping them in their tracks at every turn. They needed, remember, a strong wind behind them to set their sails on so that they could sail forward. And all that they were having so far was, one, wind that was coming against them to slow them down, and two, wind that forced them to take alternate courses on their trip. Verses 7 and 8 last week told us that they were forced to travel almost due south from Snidus to Crete because the wind wouldn't let them travel west and north to go to Rome. And that's where we pick up today's message with them still on that island, still in, in or at that port in Fair Havens on Crete. Verse 9 says again, Now when much time had been spent, the phrase much time spent, they were at the port in Fair Havens. And so they would have been spending much time there because of the contrary winds. The winds wouldn't let down. Sailing wasn't going to be profitable. They were there at the port. People could have been getting off and getting on as long as they were back at the ship before the ship left. Then they got to go and then they got to travel on their voyage. And so they wouldn't have just been sitting in the harbor. They would have been docked, you know, at the harbor or, you know, so on and so forth. So, so that's what much time spent there because of the wind. They could not travel on. They needed to go north and west from Crete to go to Rome, and they could not. The contrary winds would not allow them. So now that much time has been spent because of the dangerous wind, verse 9 goes on to say, and sailing was now dangerous. So because they had spent much time in fair havens on Crete, uh, much time again because the wind was not making it profitable for them to travel. Now because they had spent this much time in this port because of the bad weather wind, Luke tells us there that sailing had become dangerous. Why did the sailing become dangerous? Next part of verse 9. Because, he says, the fast was already over. The fast here, understand, had nothing to do with uh, the weather becoming bad or good. It, the, the, because the fast was didn't make the weather dangerous. Understand that what, what Luke did there is he gave, us a, he gave us a clue as to what the fast was. The fast here was the Jewish Day of Atonement known today as Yom Kippur, which was and still is held sometime in late September, early October. So, you know, winter time. That's kind of winter for most places. You know, if you're in southern Florida, maybe, or southern California, you know, it might cool off then a little bit. But otherwise, you know, if you're in a normal, most normal places uh, north of the equator, then that's going to be kind of winter time for you. Why did this make dangerous why did this make for, day, for dangerous sailing? Well, 
During this late September, early October time period, the seas were well known to become treacherous and dangerous because of a killer storm, hence the name of the title, called Euroclidon, or the Northeasterner, that formed on the Mediterranean Sea. Encyclopedia Britannica tells us that they are also named a Gregale or Gregales, obviously, if you're pluralizing it. Uh, Encyclopedia Britannica also tells us that a Gregale, or a Euryclidon, is a strong, cold wind that blows out of the northeast. So think in your mind, please. The wind is blowing out of the northeast, which means it's blowing southwest. So, uh, right, it's blowing south, going south, and west, Right. Well, they needed to go west and north. So can you say exactly, completely contrary? And that was the storm. That was the killer storm that they end up making it into. And this storm happens frequently in the western and central Mediterranean region and mainly in winter months. Okay. Ironically, these storms hit the exact area that they were about to head into location-wise. That's the way they were going. And the exact time of the year that they were traveling. And again, had winds that were exactly contrary to the way that they needed the wind to blow them to get them northwest. Anyway, the Gregale or the Euryclidon sometimes approached hurricane force wind speeds and was known because of the dangerous winds and the, the, the time that it was actually blowing and the, 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 the frequency of them. They were known to sink ships and kill lives and they were known there to endanger shipping also in the Mediterranean Sea. We'll talk more about the storm later in the message. As I said, again, they already, as we already read, they end up in one. Let's finish the last verse, shall we? The last words of verse 9 say that Paul advised them. What could Paul have been advising them of? I know we've already read it, but, you know, I kind of like to go along in the story here. Verse 10 saying, Men, I perceive that this voyage will end with disaster and much loss, not only of the cargo and ship, but also of our lives. You see, Paul was a pretty wise man of God. I and mean, that's what scripture has shown us so far. But Paul was, wasn't just a wise man of God. Paul was also a very wise man of the world. Paul knew the world and he knew the things of the world and he was a very educated man. And Paul was probably also very familiar with this region as it was close or near to the area he grew up in in Jerusalem, right? The Mediterranean Sea was the sea that touches Jerusalem. And anybody that wanted to go and travel, they would have taken the Mediterranean Sea to go, you know, other places throughout the region that they wanted to go to. And so, of course, even as a free man, he might have even traveled these waters. So Paul knew of these killer storms. He knew of the times that they hit, and he knew the ways in which they blew, and he knew the way that they needed to go to get to Rome. Okay, so, so this wise man of God and of the world, he uses his common sense, something that people even today in our world are lacking, but he uses his common sense by thinking about all the details that I just kind of brought up about the killer storm, and he speaks a word of warning to the people in charge of the situation. He basically says, guys, don't continue this trip at this time. Let's not endanger everybody. You're, we could die. You're, you could lose your ship. You, you could lose your cargo. All because you want to get to Rome fast. And that's not worth it. Let's go ahead and let's winter here. Very good, solid words of warning. The ship they were on was carrying thousands of pounds of grain. And verse 37 tells us, 276 people. I mean, that's a lot, right? And, and again, the time of the year that they were to travel in was, was a treacherous one, and they knew it. Paul knew it, and he advised, he advised them not to go using his common sense and the things that he knew about, you know, the world and, and weather and, and what he, you know, stories and so on and so forth. Did they listen Oh, doggone it. Read verse 11. Nevertheless, the centurion was more persuaded by the helmsman and the owner of the ship than by the things spoken by Paul. Sounds like here to me that the centurion either could have A, stopped the voyage, or B, he could have probably pulled off his, you know, his, 
caravan that he was traveling with, the 10 or 12 people that he would have had with him, roughly. And But to me, I think, personally, him being a Roman soldier, he could have stopped the bull. But but either way, whether he had that power or whether he didn't, he, it's still, they the, the helmsman and the owner of the ship were trying to persuade him to keep going. Either, either way, verse 11 just told us that the centurion was persuaded to keep the trip going by the helmsman. I would have been the fellow that steered the ship. Think of him as the pilot of the ship. And the owner of the ship, well, that's self-explanatory. Obviously, he had bought the ship and it was his ship and he was on it and, and they were, you know, they were traveling away, which means that they put the heat on the centurion to keep the voyage going and not listen to Paul, which is so sad because all Paul did, Paul had all their well-beings in his mind. He cared and loved people. Paul knew that there were more people on board than just him and his crew that were saved. Paul knew that the centurion, the owner of the ship, the, the probably the helmsman, and probably most of the people on board were not saved. No real Christian hopes that any non-believer dies or perishes. Okay, and so Paul, he's got their well-beings all in mind. He loves them, yet they do not listen to the common sense, logic, or reasoning. And again, people are the same today. Why didn't they listen to Paul's sound reasoning about this situation? Though? Why? Uh, are, are they unaware of the killer storm that's about to come their way? That's ridiculous. These people sailed these seas for years. These people were well, well, well knowledgeable about the area and about where they were. That's why, hence in a sense, you'll see here, that they kind of, well, we won't winter here, we'll winter over in this park. They knew that it was dangerous to travel. They knew that. They had they had heard the stories. Maybe they had even gotten caught in a Eurocliding or two out throughout their days. They weren't always very longevous, but they, but they did have, a lot of them were elongated. They were a long period of time that they would happen, like the storm would last days and weeks, you know, and so on and so forth. But not all of them would. So, of course, you could make it through one. But just not everybody did because they were long and hard storms. Again, hurricane force winds. Anyway, they're fully aware of the killer storm. Why didn't both the helmsman and the owner of the ship not have wanted to delay the voyage and keep their cargo in the lives of those they carried safe? Why? What was their motivation? Well, think about it. They each had a financial interest in keeping the trip going. If the helmsman could get the ship and its passengers to Italy sooner than later, he could have gotten another gig steering either that ship or another ship to fill his pockets with loot. Right? That was his motivation. i got to keep this trip going. I need work. You know, if I'm sitting here, I'm not working. i got to make money. Right, And the owner of the ship, well, <laughs> he would have been easily persuaded by money because he had a huge cargo of grain on board. Investment. Can you say investment? It was either his or he was either transporting for somebody else and he was paid to deliver it, not to sit on it in some port somewhere in the middle of the, in the, middle of the Mediterranean Sea. The sooner he delivered that grain is the sooner he'd be able to get paid. And then guess what? It would be the sooner that he'd be able to rent his ship out to somebody else or say, hey, I'll carry your cargo and give me some more money and I'll transport your cargo from here or there or whatever. So at the root of why they didn't listen to Paul's common sense and logical reasoning arguments to say save and keep everybody safe, including their own ship and cargo, is because they had a love for money. That was the main reason why they put all their lives and even their own ship and their cargo in danger. You, you know, the Bible says, 1 Timothy 6.10, that the love of money is, the, is a root to all kinds of evil. It does not say the love of money is evil. It, it's, it, but what it is, but everybody always gets this verse wrong. It, it's the love of money is a root to all kinds of evil. That means the love of money drives people to do evil things because it's a root to all kinds of evil. When I'm driven for money, well, I don't have anything else in my, I, 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 I got like blinders on. I, I can't think of anything else. I want money. I'm, I'm not saying I'm, I'm this way, but if a person is blinded by their desire, their love for money, then just like the owner of the ship and the helmsman here, they don't, they don't even have any regard for the 276 people on board that they could lose their lives. It's just, it's, it's so sad, so sad. Christians, 
Don't be led by money and don't be in love with money. Loving money can be dangerous to your earthly life, right? As we'll see later on in this message. And it can also endanger your eternal life so that you lose or forfeit your eternal life. And yes, that is a thing. Uh, as Paul goes on to tell Timothy, 1 Timothy 6.10, he says, the, the beginning of the verse, the love of money is the root to all kinds of evil, but the end of the verse, for which some, having strayed from the faith, well, if I'm straying from a path, or if I'm straying from a vacation trip, and I stray from you know, the route that I'm supposed to take, am I going to end up in my right destination if I stray from the path? No, I'm not, unless I get back on the path that takes me where I want to go. For some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. So Christians, the love of money is dangerous. Back to the sermon, though. So the consensus among probably the two most important people on board owner pilot aside from the roman soldier was to keep going and ignore paul's warning what happens does the centurion listen to the majority well bad news for the crew as we've already read read verse 12 though again and because the harbor was not suitable to winter in the majority advised to set sail from there also if by any means they could reach phoenix a harbor of Crete, opening toward the southwest and northwest and winter there so for some reason they say that the harbor there in Fair Havens was not able to hold a ship for the winter, meaning that they couldn't stay at this particular harbor, but that there was another harbor that wasn't far from them, and that was in a city called Phoenix, and so the majority rules, and so they go off sailing to that city. This is not the terrible news of the day. They say they're just going to go to another harbor on the same island to lay over until winter weather is over. But unfortunately, I don't think that they're being honest here. So their decision does make for some really bad news. Look at verse 12. So they're out. They're, they're away from Fair Havens. They're headed toward this other harbor in, in, on Crete called Phoenix. Verse 12, when the south wind blew softly, that's so important, supposing they had obtained their desire, Putting out to sea, they sail close to Crete. So the majority ruled in this situation, as it usually always does in every situation when our opinions are taken, and they don't sit out the bad weather in Fair Havens where they should have set out the bad weather. And now you see that they don't sit out the winter in Phoenix because there that verse told us that they put out to sea. That, that means that they went ahead and they said, no, we're not going to look for that port. We're going to pass that port on by. We're setting our sights, we're setting our course for this place, and so we're headed that way. I personally think their excuse of trying to port in Phoenix to winter in was garbage. I, I Maybe you disagree with me on that as I was thinking about this. I, I do. I, I personally think that they just used that excuse so that they would be able to go out and they'd be able to keep going and they'd be able to keep going and chasing that money. I think that Paul, and the reason I think this as we've already seen that Paul's a pretty wise man of God all throughout the book of Acts, and he was a very wise man of the world, as you know, God gave him that awesome wisdom, plus he was a very studious man, a very educated man. I think, personally, scripturally, I think Paul would have known if their ship couldn't have wintered in Fair Havens. And, and, and he would have never given it as an option if it wasn't one. I mean, again, Paul was a great, wise man. He was a brilliant man of God. And... and that's what scripture shows us. So how would he not know Fair Havens was not a port that they could winter in? I mean, how could he, how could that escape his knowledge when he, the knowledge of this killer storm that they were about to head into, he knew about that and they were all trying to play it off, but, but he knew about that. I, I think their excuse of trying to go to another port was just made to get them back on the sea to go for their payday in Rome. And, and I also know human nature because I know myself. You see, I, in, in my younger days, me and my family used to like to travel a lot, and I'm always about the road trip. Love those road trips. Get out in the car, get out there, you know, go traveling. Well, I kind of am always very anxious to get to our destination instead of stopping and smelling the roses because I, I figure it's better on a vacation to get there as soon as possible, you know, and then enjoy the time that we have there. My motivation is purely good because I, I want to be able to get where we're going rest and then do things wherever we're going and not stop 25 times along the way well i've been often guilty of you know we get out we start traveling you know we knew it was going to be a two-day trip but you know we're, we're making good time and well 
you know, it's two o'clock in the morning. Oh, we only got another 200 miles or we only got another 150 miles. Oh, you know, I mean, oh, honey, you know, it's already two o'clock in the morning. What kind of sleep are we going to have? Now, I'm making all kinds of excuses. So that what? We just keep traveling. I think personally they wanted their payday and they made this excuse. I don't think they ever had any intention to weather in Phoenix. Again, they were right on the edge of the killer storm territory, and they were right in the midst of the time period that the killer storm typically struck. Remember, late September, early October. Continuing the trip was dangerous and stupid, and they all knew it. But that love of money, oh, that love of money, what did it do? It impaired their judgment. So important, people. It's so important. You do not let the love of money impair your judgment. Now, as far as verse 12 is concerned and the warm wind that blew softly as to why they thought they had obtained their perfect travel conditions is because, think of this, the weather that made the killer storm was a cold one, that's key, that blew from the north to the south, and it was not present as they were traveling. Instead, Scripture tells us that they felt and were being pushed ahead by a south warm wind. And now that would have been a, a wind that came up from the south and blew north. So that wind caught their sails and that wind was heading north, right? And that's the way they needed to go. And that other wind wasn't there. And so they, they think, aha, we finally got the travel conditions that we've wanted this whole time. And so they decide and they think to themselves, oh, yeah, 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 it's safe. But again, I don't think they were ever intending to stop in Phoenix. And they decide to push forward and go for the gold and just sail their boat close to the island and keep the good warm, behind, warm you know, jet stream behind them as they went. It was probably the best sailing that they had done since they started the trip. Sadly, it doesn't last long. Because think about it, they, they got that wind while they were close to Crete, while they were under the shelter of the island of Crete. Well, if you just look at the map, Crete itself, the island, it wouldn't have been an island if it's not no ocean after. So Crete, the island, had to end. And as soon as the end of that island hit, well, then they were in open ocean. Well, open ocean is so unpredictable. And they already knew the chances of this storm coming were high because they were in the high times for it to be there. The, their travel conditions didn't last long, just like the gold and money they were all loving and living for in their lives wouldn't last long in their pockets once they did get to Rome, if they made it there alive and with all of their cargo and with all their lives. But verse 14, sadly, uh, but not long after, that means that uh, they're along that, they're, they're headed along, they think they've got it, they're headed toward open ocean, but not long after, a temptatious headwind arose called Euroclidon. There she is, the killer Mediterranean sea storm, the Euroclidon, and it had just shortly after it was too late for them to go back hit them. The Euroclidon, also named the Northeasterner, is one I talked about earlier. The reason Paul gave his advice to stay in Fair Havens has now come upon them. The dreaded storm that Paul knew that could come, it's now here. The same one that they all knew sunk ships. The same one that they all knew killed people. Ta-da! Just like a magic trick, boop, out of nowhere, except that we saw this one coming, right? Like like the, the magician that pulls the rabbit out of his hat, right? We, oh, we knew that trick was coming, right? Ta-da, here it is, and they all knew it was coming. But here, guess what? They got nowhere to run and nowhere to hide. Well, what do they do? Look at verses 15 and 16. So when the ship was caught, there we go, they were caught. Nowhere to go, nowhere to run, nowhere to hide and could not head into the wind. Obviously, remember, they were trying to head north, and the wind was blowing from the north to the south, so directly contrary against their, against their, their sails. And then we could not head into the wind. We let her drive. Because of the hard, cold north wind, the, shump, the ship becomes uncontrollable with the sails up. When the sails are up, that's when the wind catches them, either from behind or from the front. And so the wind that was now driving them to the south, it was driving them to the south in a crazy way. The wind was blowing, again, 
hurricane-force winds. Remember, I said earlier, that's Encyclopedia Britannica. So this wasn't just a, oh, cold wind, oh, we're getting cold on board. This was a, this was a 80, 90, 100-mile-an-hour wind or stronger that was now hitting their sails. Remember, blowing from the north to the south. They're heading to the north. So what's going to happen? Well, it's moving the ship back. They're trying to go north. It's pushing the ship back. And they wanted to go north, and they couldn't fight the wind in the sails. So they let down the sails, is what that verse just told us, and let the sea or ocean take them because they had no choice what they were going to do. Verse 16, look at that one. And running under the shelter of an island called Claudia, or Clauda, today that's modern-day Gavdos, which is a tiny island off the southern coast of Crete, roughly 50 miles southwest from where they left from their trip in Fair Havens, which means that they didn't make it far before the storm hit, but it was too far for them to go back to Fair Havens or even Phoenix. And while they were there, it says while they're stuck there, moving in the opposite direction, it says they secured the skiff with difficulty. A skiff is a little boat that most all big boats have at least one of. They usually uh, hang those skiffs over the side of the boat or they usually hang them on ropes and they're kind of hanging over the deck and, and ready to go. And what happens is it's usually a big boat who cannot pull up to the coast of a land that they're going to, an island that they're at, America, because as you know, you get closer to the coast, of course, the sea gets more shallow. And of course, you get the prow of the boat stuck in, in, a, in a shallow water. Well, then your boat is stuck and you can't get it out. And it, it, your boat just either gets bashed up by the wind or you're just stuck there for good. You just can't ever get out. So they would anchor out in the harbor of a place, put their anchor out, and then put the little skiff out, lower it to the water with ropes and some pulleys. And then they have some people in there so that when they got, so that they could take that little boat and transport the people kind of to the island or to the land that they were going to. And Luke, Luke tells us there that they uh, secure it with difficulty. That means that, remember, this was near the edge of the boat. Their big boats being tossed. This is a, temptap- a temptatious wind. They're being swung back and forth. The sea is crazy. It's like the crazy seas of Jonah when God was trying to wake Jonah up and get him to go to Nineveh to give him his message. And so they were near this edge of the boat while the boat's going back and forth. So they're trying to get the skiff so that it doesn't fly off into the sea so that they can have it as a means of if they need it later. You know, and so they're trying to get it and trying to hook it out. And so they finally do get it and it's in and they get it kind of down to the deck as we'll read the next verse but but what this does show us here is it shows that they are in big bad trouble and that's putting it lightly i mean they're 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 in fear of their lives here look at what they had to do after they secured the skiff look at verse 17 when we had taken it on board remember that's putting the skiff on the deck they used cables to undergird the ship what is that well, I had to look that up because I'm not a mariner. So undergirding the ship is also called frapping. And it's a process of, think of this. This, this is the trouble that they're in. This is the point that they're at. Now, this is just day one. They hit this, they hit this storm. They're, day one. They leave them for Fair Havens. Boom, the, 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 the storm hits. Then all of a sudden, they have to secure the skiff. And then they have to undergird the ship. That means that they had to pass cables or ropes several times under and around the ship and tighten it to the deck. Why would they have to do that? Well, the only reason they had to do that is because back then ships were made with wood, wood planks. So basically this undergirding the ship with these cables was to stop the ship from pulling apart on its own as the storm was that crazy. The wood planks, would, would, the wind was so bad, the storm was so bad that being the boat hitting the, the, the water so much, the wood boards could have literally pulled apart. What would, that ha- what would happen? What happens when your wood pulls apart and your ship's made of wood? Well, guess what? You sink! That's the kind of trouble that they're in. The Euryclidon, no light storm. This is why the title of the sermon, The Killer Storm. Now, uh, didn't I just tell you that they were in major trouble? That's pretty major if the ship's being pulled apart by the weather, by the storm, by the sea. But the boat being pulled apart by the storm only wasn't their only problem. (laughs) There was another way the ship could have been pulled apart. The rest of verse 17 says, And fearing lest they should run aground on the Sirtis sands, 
So they, what's going to tell us they struck sail and they headed another way. But this was a sandbank that they knew that they were close to because they could still, I guess the storm hadn't blocked out all the, you know, the sites of everything yet. They could still make some, you know, no, notice of where they were. Plus they know where they had just left from. And to give you an idea where they were close to, they're kind of like close to the middle of the Mediterranean. They're not really that far from, you know, Asia, but now here they're, they just left Crete. They were near Libya in Africa, which is 100 miles or so from Crete. Again, they needed to go north, and they ended up near Africa, which was way south, the the northernmost border of Africa, Libya. Wow, right? And the worst part of them being near Libya wasn't their being there near that country. It was being near that sandbank, an area of, of the ocean that was shallow. It wasn't near a coast. It was kind of in, you know, out in the water. And, and of course, sailors initially would come upon them surprised, right? Because they didn't know that they were there. Well, and what does the sandbank happens? Well, a ship is deep. And the sandbank, uh, sandbank is the ocean that's raised up. And so obviously if the ship runs into a sandbank, then their prow, then their then their rudders get, they get stuck in the sand, and then they're in a storm. So think about one part of the ship being stuck in a sandbank, and the other part of the ship being in loose water, and then there being a storm that's so bad it's practically pulling their boat apart. They have to undergird it. Think of what's going to happen. What's well, that's not a good situation. That's the boat not only tearing apart, being pulled apart. That's that's the boat literally the wood ripping and tearing and then the boat absolutely snapping because of the crazy weather in the back where the ship can still move but the front of the boat stuck in a sand barge or sand sandbank that's a bad situation because if they hit those surtis sands they were done for same as if they didn't undergird the ship so the only thing they can do end of verse 17 they struck sail and were so driven or Open their sails so that they wouldn't, so that they would catch the wind again. They knew the wind was blowing different ways and contrary to where they were going, but they still knew that if they let the sea drive them, they were going to end up in the sand. So they opened the sails and then they let the wind take them where it takes them. They are in terrible. They are in a terrible situation at this point. Terrible, terrible, terrible. Their love of money had caused their judgment to be impaired, and they were in the midst of a killer storm that was so bad that they had to take some ropes or cables and tie them around the boat so the wood wouldn't come apart. And now they're in danger of striking a sea bank, which is way south of where they wanted to be, almost in Africa, when they wanted to go north to Rome. And even though things are really bad for them, Wouldn't you know it? Sadly, things get worse. Look at verses 18 and 19. And because we were exceedingly tempest-tossed, the next day they lightened the ship. Day one, they they left Crete, right? The horrible day where they left Crete and they got caught in the killer storm. Now, verse this verse here, we're in day two. Now they have to lighten the ship. What would you think? Now they're in fear of the ship being pulled apart. What would you think would be the first thing that they do to lighten the ship? What would be the most the heaviest thing on this ship? If you you're, you know using your common sense, your logic, I like to get people to try to do that. Just think, they had thousands of pounds of grain on board. So what do you think would have been the first thing that they did to lighten the ship? Well, that would have been to dump its heaviest cargo, and its heaviest cargo was the precious grain the owner of the ship wanted to make so much money on that he put everybody's life at risk for. The love of money is dangerous, people. It blinds you, it deceives you, and it leaves you for a dead, and it can leave you in dead uh, in this life mostly, and, and especially in your next life. And so you have to be careful. The love of money is dangerous. Verse 19, on the third day, we threw the ship's tackle overboard with our hands. Now, they're in day three, still being mauled by the killer storm, tossed to and fro by the wind and the waves, barely hanging in there. Now they have to throw away a very vital resource for their boat. They have to throw the tackle overboard. What's the tackle? That's the equipment that controlled the ship. That was the equipment that controlled where the ship went. It controlled the sails and how they could turn the sails. And it was at, and, and they had to throw it overboard to lighten the ship because the ship, if it's too heavy, think about it, the wind and the waves, the heavier it is, every time they go up on a you know, big wave and then they come down on a big wave and then they get hit by another wave, well, then that weight 
could take them under. So, of course, they have to lighten the load. At this point on, the only way they'll be able to control the ship is by either their anchors, which we'll see they do here in this in this account and even next week or two weeks from now, or some oars if they had any. I doubt it, but they might have had some oars. And what Luke tells us of later, some rudder ropes. They did have a way to control the rudder with some ropes that they had on board too. But things go from bad to worse in our last verse for today, and then from worse to nuclear worse in the rest of the account but we'll only get to the bad to worst time today in verse 20 as that is our last verse for today for time's sake verse 20 now when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days now we already know they've been on the sea three days and it's already not been good three days they they, they, they're they're wondering if they're going to live at this point here all hope we we would have to be saved was finally given up we, we don't know how many days is many at this point but just you know taking some common sense here thinking many of myself it's more than three because we already know they've been we've chronicled three days so let, let's just say many from three days would be maybe another four or five days so now maybe put them at seven to eight days on the sea uh that's bad and at this point luke tells us here that they haven't seen any sign of the skies neither of the day or of the night. They haven't seen any sun in the day because the storm's been that bad. It's blocking out the sun. And they haven't even seen any stars by night. Neither sun nor stars appeared, which is horribly bad because that means that they were traveling practically blindly. The skies were one of the ways that navigated a mariner's journey. And they've been now traveling for over a week and now they have no idea where they even are. Again, this is one of a mariner's worst nightmares. Hence why Luke writes what he does in the last of that verse, the final, final of our last today. All hope that we would be saved was finally given up. Think of these things. At this point, they have no idea where they are. They have practically no way to control the ship, no way that they would normally control the ship. They have dropped very important cargo, and the killer storm was continuing on without ceasing. They could have run into another ship. They could have run into another sandbank. And if the storm didn't stop, which it didn't look like it was going to, the ship could have been pulled apart eventually or capsized, and they all would have died. Literally, there's no reason at this point why they think that they'll live through this nightmare journey. Do they make it through the killer storm alive? Well, we know at least Paul does. Remember Acts 23, 11, Jesus said, you will testify of me in Rome as you have in Jerusalem. So we know Paul's going to make it at least. What about the rest? What about the rest of the 276 people that are on board? The precious lives that God loved these people and he wanted to save them. How about the Roman centurion, the owner of the boat, the helmsman, the other passengers? Do they make it through? Well, we won't make it again to that part of the chapter this week, maybe a couple weeks from now. But yes, they do make it out because of Paul and I'm sure the other faithful Christians that are on board. Verse 24 tells us that God sends an angel to tell Paul that he will make it out of the storm alive along with everyone else on the boat. But there is a stipulation to that they're making it alive. But we're not going to get to that today. I'm just kind of preluding it for you. You can go read it yourself, but it's a very important stipulation and probably talk about it a lot in that sermon. But Closing out, what lessons can we take away from the whole account of the killer storm? I, I, I saw a couple. God struck my heart with a couple. Number one, people, whether you're lost, whether you're saved, whether you would consider yourself a Christian, whether you would consider yourself whatever you consider yourself, use common sense when making big decisions. Use common sense in your life, okay? A good practice to live your life by, whether you're making any kind of decisions, whether big or small, is to start, when you're faced with a decision, stop. Don't just make a snap decision and a big decision, or any decision at all. Snap decisions and making decisions can be dangerous. It can be life-threatening, like we see here. Right, whether it's big or small, start taking time out and thinking about what you to do. Think about it first. Right? That is such an important thing to do that we think about things before we do them and use our common sense instead of just jumping into things and using common sense that God gave us along with simple logic 
Use those things to help you make a right decisions. Bad decisions happen because people don't use logic and common sense, and bad decisions can be life changers in a deadly way. Just look at the situation with Paul and the other 275 people or four people, whatever it was, 276 minus one, two, 275 people on board. The world is sincerely lacking people that use common sense. I, I'm, I'm just telling you, I work with people every day, and common sense is not, it's not big anymore. People just go by whatever they feel, whatever they're driven by, whatever their desire is, whatever their passion is. People just go that way. Stop it. Use some common sense, please. Common, if people just used common sense in our world, the world would be a much better place. People wouldn't do such stupid things, especially driving cars. I live in Texas and the Dallas, Texas area, and people don't, do not use common sense on the road while they're driving their cars. And because they don't, accidents galore down our major highways here. It's, it's crazy, 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 crazy. So that's my first lesson that I would like to point out kind of exhort you whether you may be a Christian or not a Christian. But number two, the second thing we learned from today's message is don't be a lover of money. Don't be a lover of money. Remember Paul wrote Timothy, 1 Timothy 6.10, for the love of money is, the, is a root of all kinds of evil for which some having strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. The main reason that the owner of the ship and the ship's pilot wanted to keep the voyage going and ignore the sound reason and common sense that Paul gave them to stop was because they loved money. Think. They loved that money more than the 276 precious lives, including their own, that were on board. They were willing to take a risk and keep going on even though they knew this was the prime time for the killer storm to hit. The reason money can be so dangerous to people, especially for God's kids, is because it's easily something that we can fall into the trap of serving. Oh, it before I got saved, I served money. I mean, because I was serving myself and I served money and I could never have enough and I lived my life. And that was my motivations how I lived. And that was what I lived for. I lived to go to work so that I could make the money. And I worked a job where I got regular daily tips and, and a lot of them, the harder I worked. And so I could literally see it coming to me every, like all throughout the day, every day almost, not only in my paycheck every week or two. And that was my motivation. And I fell into, of course, the service of money. You're serving money. If that's you, if you do that, that's you serving, making your life all about the gaining of one thing, money. And you see, there's one problem with serving money. One huge problem with serving money is that it doesn't last forever. <laughs> the more you make, generally, most people, the more they spend. I've had, I had my own son once contradicted me on that. That's not true and that won't be me. Well, he makes more money now and he spends more money now. I mean, that's just, it happened. And I, we were just talking about it the other night. The more money you make, the more money you spend, the money goes faster. Because it's like, oh, I got some freedom now. I can, you know, spend this. I can do that. But it doesn't last forever. And if you're not careful with what you even make, because you're not using common sense, then it goes even faster than that. Right? But you can't take it with you when you die either. That's another thing. No matter how much you make, no matter how much you earn, whether you're Bill Gates or or whether you're Steve Jobs, you can't take it with you. When Steve Jobs died several years back, all the probably billions that he had made in Apple, in the Apple phone, in the iPhone, they all went to somebody else. They all went to somebody else that was still living. And then that person, whether they keep it or, or, or give it all away or spend it, when they die, they can't take it with them either. So you're living for something that's completely temporary, completely and utterly temporary. So temporary that if you died today, what's well, gone today? If you die tomorrow, it's gone tomorrow. Even if you die at the age of 100 and you're only 30 or 40 now, it's still gone, all of it, to somebody else when you die. And the main problem with serving money or even the things of the world, because that's what it usually leads to, I serve money, then I want the things of the world, uh, is that you really don't love and serve Jesus Christ. 
And the Bible says that if that's you, then you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus Christ said, Matthew 6, 24, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. You may think, oh, I can serve money in God. <laughs> no, because your service of money will lead you away from the service of God. Every time, your love of money will lead you away from the service to God. Who do you serve today? Ask yourself that. Whom do you serve today? Do you serve Jesus Christ? Do you serve yourself? Do you serve money, mammon, or things of this world? Whom do you serve? And it'll be evident because you've got to examine your life. It's not going to be something that's going to just maybe jump right out to you. Of course, right now I hope and pray actually that the Holy Spirit will convict you if this is you. But who you serve will be evident by your passions and where you spend your time. Very clear. Just look at how you live your life, the things that you do, and the things that you spend your life doing, the things that consume your life. If you love Jesus Christ, then you're on your knees, you're in prayer, you're in his word, following his word every day. You're you're focusing your life on obeying his commandments. You're 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 trying to set your sights on abstaining from from a sinful way of life and from the sinfulness of this world. If you love and serve Jesus Christ it is. And your life is set, your heart is set on practicing righteousness, loving others telling others about Jesus Christ, going to church and church functions, helping others, loving others, being kind to others, doing things for others, helping your family, leading people to the kingdom. These will all be kind of traits that will like, you know, sum up what your life is like. Those are things that you can look at. Hey, do I serve Jesus Christ? Is my life really like that? Or the other option, do you love and live for yourself and spend your time and all your passions are on yourself and what you can attain? Is your focus on how much money can I make? And then, oh, once I got the money, oh, what can I do with it? And do those things drive you? Do you love sin? Do you love drinking alcohol and getting drunk? Do you, are you a drugger? You love taking drugs. You love the way those drugs make you feel high. And then so you live your life, you do all your things to live your life for that so that you can get high and you can get stoned and you can get drunk. Or, or you do all you do because you want sex from a woman or sex from a man and you want to go out and you want to do all these things so that your drive is that you can get those things. What is your drive in life? What motivates you? As I just said, those that really truly love Jesus Christ, their drive and their motivation is taking care of their family, loving the Lord, following the Lord, doing what the Lord told them to do. The motivation for somebody that's not is the things of this world. Myself, my own pleasure, money, the things that I can get, sex, drugs, alcohol, whatever. Whatever you're into. Big houses, fancy cars. That's going to be your drive. And Jesus said, Matthew 6, you you can't serve both. So examine yourselves, please, today, all you who are listening to me, because really the Bible says your eternity depends on it. And if you do examine yourself and realize that you do love money, Maybe you do realize, man, I, I do love myself. And you know what? I serve myself. And man, I do all that I can to make more money and even sacrifice my time with my family. And I make more money because I got to have the money. I got to have the money. I got to have the money. And that's what your focus is. Uh, or, or you love the things of this world and attaining the things of this world. Then the Bible says that God wants you to repent to Christ. Repent. And that means have a heart change. Wow. I can't believe it. I, I didn't realize I, I was wrong. Wow, Lord God, I'm, I am so sorry. You're right. Yeah, I don't serve you. I live for myself and I live for money. I don't serve you. 
And so then we, that's, a, that's a step of faith. And Jesus Christ said in Matthew 16, 24, that we needed to, and this is for salvation, of course, this is to make yourself right with God. He said that we needed to deny ourselves. And that, that first step is so important because that denying ourselves is taking yourself off the throne, stopping living for yourself, stopping living for those things. Instead, have, let God take a hold of your heart. Same, same way if you ever fell in love with a, a husband or a wife or a young girl in high school or something, the same way you let that, that, that one kind of grab hold of your heart, kind of get a hold of your attention, and then become your everything, you know, and all that you did for. That's kind of the thing there. Jesus said you need to deny yourself. That's for salvation. Make, allow God, set your heart, set your mind towards Christ. And, and let him enrapture you. Don't f- forget about the things of this world. It's, it's, a heart, it's a heart change. It's an attitude change. Salvation comes first by an attitude change. Wow, I'm wrong. God, I need Jesus Christ. And then setting your heart on Christ and letting him have your heart. Letting him have all of you. Fixing your eyes on him and letting everything else just fade away. And to say, man, I need Jesus. And then he says, he goes on to say, and then to take up our crosses and then to follow after him. And those were all daily things that we were supposed to do. Taking up our cross, living for him, following him, doing the things that he told you to do. Salvation is not meant for, oh, I got saved and I did my one thing, my get out of hell free card. Salvation is now, okay, I came to Christ. I'm saved. Now I'm his. All right, Lord, what do you want me to do? Because, man, you, you, you love me enough to save me. Well, what do you want me to do for you now? And that's the pick up your cross and that's your following after him. If you realize this is you and you need to do this, I want you to please turn to him today. Please turn to him away from the love and the service that you give to money and yourself and the things of this world because you can't take them with you and they, can't, they won't last forever and you will die and you can't take them with you and they'll always disappoint you because you'll always want more. Enough will never be enough. It's a sinking ship. Same way as the, the ship that they were on was going to go down and it was going to be destroyed. That's the eventual end of the story. That ship will eventually fall for you. The money ship, the things ship, the the self ship. Those ships will sink. Turn to the Lord today before it's too late. He loves you and he's waiting for you. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word. And thank you so much, Lord God, for this section of scripture. Lord, thank you so much, Lord, for the things that we can learn from your word today. And I, and I pray, Lord God in heaven, that whoever's out there listening to me right now, whether it's a saved person or whether they're an unsaved person, Lord God, I pray that this message, Lord, if, if any of these things that I spoke on today touched their hearts, Lord God, I pray that they would listen. And I pray, dear God, please draw them to you, Lord God. Don't let them keep walking away from you in whatever way it is. Those that are yours, Lord, help them not to fall in love with money. Give them a sobering slap in the face, Lord, and help them to realize that money is not what we are to live for. Jesus Christ is who redeemed us, and that's who we need to live for. That should, he should be our goal. He should be our everything. He should be our thrust. He should be our drive. He should be the wind in our sails that's moving us toward you, dear God, and toward heaven. Help us to realize, Lord God, that the things of this world are so temporary. And why are we going to live for anything temporary, Lord God in heaven, when, when you're eternal? And Lord, you said if, if we serve, as we serve you, we build up treasure in heaven. So Lord, we can either try to build up treasure in heaven here and possibly lose our souls if we, if we try to build up treasure down here and, and, we, and we let that service to the world and to the things of this world take over our love for you, because it can happen. Paul warned Timothy. And then we can lose and forfeit that eternal salvation and those eternal rewards that you have for all those that are faithful to the end. Lord, or maybe those who are out there that are not that listen to me that are not yours. Lord God in heaven, please show them that all that they're living for, they're sinking ships. They're sinking ships. Those ships die. Those ships, just like my ship, 18, 19 years ago, my ship was headed down in flames. And God, I pray, please, cause them to realize that the ships that they live for, the ships that they hang out on are going down and they're going to be destroyed and they're going to take them down 
with him. Unlike the ship that perished in Paul's journey that saved the people that were on on board. And I'm not going to talk about that now. I don't want to ruin anything about that for that next sermon. But Lord, just like that ship that it went down, but it saved those on board. Lord, the ships that the lost are on now are that are going down, like mine was going down. Lord, those ships don't go down and save us. Those ships go down in flames and we stay on them and we die. And then of course, Lord, if we're not serving you, we die and go to the flames. So God, please slap them, wake them up, bring them to or back to Christ, please. Help them realize they need you and help them turn to you today. And we ask these things in Jesus Christ's mighty name. Amen.